Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Well, last week we started a new series called Next Steps into a New Normal. And I want to say this to you. This is not just our current message series. This is our core ministry strategy to make disciples of Jesus who love God, love people, and serve the world. A disciple is simply a follower, and that's why last week's message was titled, Follow Me. And I encourage you to watch that as we kind of challenged and wrestled through, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, we've seen a lot of people this year be baptized into Jesus. In fact, more people have been baptized in the first six months of this year than any other January to June ever at Journey. I think that's cause for celebration, don't you? We should celebrate that. Even when the in-person gatherings had to be paused over the previous four Sundays, we saw some people baptized in the most unexpected of settings. I don't know if you've seen these pictures or not, but here's, this is Pastor Eddie. Uh, pastor Eddie is, uh, uh, our, been our campus pastor at Lake County for the past few years. He just accepted a new assignment up in North Carolina. So uh, we were saying goodbye to him a couple Sunday nights ago. And uh, this is Don. And he showed up and he said, uh, you know, I regret that I was not baptized uh, by you. And Eddie said, no time like now, brother, and uh, got him into baptistry and baptized him on a send-off for a pastor. That's unique, wouldn't you say? Here's another one. I don't know if we, can we, do we have another picture of uh, the middle school student? I don't know if we have, okay, we don't have that one. Last week, we had a middle school student that was baptized in a pool. They had made the decision to be baptized on August 1st. And of course, on August 1st, we weren't meeting in the building. And they said, you know what? I'm not going to let that stop me. And uh, they were baptized last week. So let's give God great uh, glory for all that. You know, we often tell people who are newly baptized that baptism isn't the finish line it's just the starting gate to a life of following Jesus. But here's what I've seen over the years. We're not very clear about what a life of following Jesus looks like. So this series is not just the latest messages that you can listen to about Jesus. This is a strategy you can live by to actually follow Jesus. And we start our journey of following Jesus where the original followers of Jesus started, by worshiping him. You see, when we get a glimpse of the reality of who Jesus is as God in the flesh, the only natural response is to worship him. Not to have that response is a telling sign that you haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. Now, we see this in an early encounter between Peter and Jesus. A little lengthy scripture, but what else you got to do today, right? <laughs> Let's read it together. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. 
He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, it's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful Man, Now, I know it may not sound like it, but that last statement, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, is really a statement of worship. Because Peter's recognizing two things at once. He's recognizing Jesus' worthiness and his unworthiness. Anybody remember the old Saturday Night Live characters created by Mike Meyer and Dana Carvey, Wayne and Garth of Wayne's World? And the answer is, of course you do, but there's no way you're admitting that in church. (laughs) One of their classic responses when they encountered something they were in awe of would be this, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. This is in essence what Peter is saying here, only he's not doing it for laughs. He's saying it for real. And he falls to his knees and he says, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, Lord. This statement echoes what the great Hebrew prophet Isaiah uttered when he saw a vision of the glory of God in the temple one day. And Isaiah said, woe unto me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Both Isaiah's encounter with God in the temple and Peter's experience with the Son of God on the shoreline reveal a couple of very important truths about worship. Here's one of the first ones. Before there is the commitment to follow, there is the confession of worship. There is the recognition of both who God is, holy, and who we are, unclean and unworthy. And so right after Peter's confession of Jesus' holiness and his fallenness, we read these words. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and what did they do? Followed him. Here you go. The revelation of Jesus in worship is the basis of the motivation needed to follow Jesus in discipleship. If you don't get anything else today, I hope you get that statement because that's the core of what I want to talk to you about. The revelation of Jesus in worship is the basis of the motivation needed to follow Jesus in discipleship. At the heart of worship is the worthship of Jesus. Listen, we won't be able to answer the question as followers of Jesus, is it worth it when the hard times come? And they will come, and for many, they're here right now. Until we can answer this question, is he worthy? Understanding who he is 
upholds who we are in him and what we do for him. So I want you to know this. Worshiper is, worshiper of Jesus is an identity we embrace before worship of Jesus is an activity we engage. Meaning we are worshipers every day of the week. We don't just attend a worship gathering one day a week. This is so important to understand. Worship is fundamental to understanding who we are as people created in the image of God. We've been designed by God to be worshipers. There's an inclination and motivation placed in our hearts by our creator intended to draw us to himself, the only one who's worthy of our worship. I want to tell you something right now. There is no such thing as a non-worshiping human being. You understand that? Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. Everybody attaches their identity, hopes, dreams, sense of well-being, meaning, and purpose to something. The scripture writers tell us that there are only two possible objects of worship. We either worship the creator or we worship some facet, aspect, or part of the creation. And anything you worship other than God will eventually eat you alive. Nothing can satisfy the human heart's longing for meaning like the worship of the God who made us, sent his son to die for us, and gave us his spirit to live in us. That's why faithful followers worship faithfully. Now, in the rest of this message, I want to make a case for why faithful worship is so essential to faithful discipleship. Number one, when I worship God, I become more human. When I worship God, I become more human. This is how Psalm 100 starts. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before the Lord with joyful songs. Know for sure that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. What's so striking to me in this passage is that last line. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. In just a few words, the theology of creation is beautifully stated. And this is the fundamental basis of worship. This tells us that we're not here alone or on our own. This tells me everything isn't up to me. And it isn't about me. And when I realize that, it helps me become more me. Let me explain this with the help of my favorite New Testament scholar, Tom Wright. Tom Wright says there's two golden rules at the heart of worship. Number one, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculators. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness and sexual prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. The German reformer Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So what happens when we worship the creator God whose plan to rescue the world and put it to rights has been accomplished through the sacrifice of his own son? Tom Wright says the answer comes in the second golden rule of worship. Worship makes you more truly human. 
When you gaze in gratitude at the God in whose, whose image you're made, you grow, you flourish, you discover what it means to be more fully alive. And one of the early church fathers, a man named Irenaeus said this, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Conversely, when you give that same total worship to anything or anyone else, you shrink, you languish. It may not feel like it at the time. When you worship part of the creation as though it was the creator himself, you can feel a momentary rush and a temporary high, but like in a hallucinatory drug, that worship achieves its effect at a cost when the effect is over. You're less of a human being than you were to begin with. That is the high cost of idolatry, my friends, which Tim Keller defines as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what God can only give you. The opportunity, friends, the invitation, the summons is to worship the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer and restorer of all things. And when we do, we become more fully and truly human. Here's a second dynamic at work in worship. When I worship, it produces a deep sense of gratitude in me. Because here's a truth I know about all of us. All of us have an inner complaining lurking to get out. There's an inner complainer inside each one of us just looking for the opportunity to escape. But when I worship, something changes in my mind. The psalmist put it like this. It's verse 4 of Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. He's talking about gathering in corporate worship now. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Here's what can happen to us. At least it can happen to me. Sometimes just in our default mode, mentally, we can actually start our day as if we think we're beginning in neutral. And it's like if some good things happen early on in the day, I'll feel lucky, I'll be happy, and I'll have a good day. Conversely, if some bad things happen early on, I feel a little unlucky, I feel unhappy, and I think I'm gonna have a bad day. But when I worship, I stop and remember all the ways that God has been good to me right now in this very moment in my life. This is very important. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, that you spend some time reflecting on how good God has been to you. In fact, I want to suggest that you write some things down to remind you of this truth. Say, what are you talking about? Things like this. God's given me a life. I mean, he didn't have to. No reason why I should exist, but I do. God's given me a body. God's given me a mind so I can think stuff. I can read stuff. God's given me senses that see and taste and touch and hear and feel. He didn't have to do that. That's all bonus. God's given me relationships. There are people who love me, a, a mom, a dad, siblings, a wife, children, grandchildren, loyal friends. God's given me the forgiveness of my sins. How often do I just take that one for granted? God's given me the promise of abundant life here and eternal life in the age to come through what Jesus did for me. God's given me the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in me and through me. He sealed me with his spirit to mark me as his own. God's given me a church to belong to. I get to be part of Journey Christian Church. God's given me spiritual gifts I didn't ask for, and I certainly don't deserve them. 
so that I could do something with my life that's worthwhile. God has given me the assurance that when my life comes to its end, death will not have the last word and I will live with God forever. And friends, listen, that's just a little bit of what God's given me. I read through a list like that and I think, God, I'm such an idiot sometimes forever thinking that my day is starting in neutral. My day never starts in neutral at all. I've been given so much already. I can't even begin to name it all. I'm way ahead in the game and my cup is overflowing. So Paul writes, so Paul writes, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you another reason why worship is important. When I worship, it connects me to other people. And we become bonded together in a way that no other human activity can accomplish. My friend, Pastor Rick Ashley says, I love singing praises to God with the people of God. Listen, he says, the lyrics don't just bind me to him, they bind me to them. Rick points out that every scene of worship from the book of Revelation is always pictured in a corporate setting. Meaning, you won't find someone off by themselves worshiping God alone in the life to come. So one of the benefits of gathering to worship is to practice what we're heading for. I wish I could explain this better, but some of you know what I'm talking about. That something mysteriously powerful happens when we gather with other believers to worship. There's power in the presence of God's people. Perhaps the most helpful way to explain this is when you decide to become a follower of Jesus, God's spirit lives in you, inside you. In fact, Paul said the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in me when I give my life to Jesus. In other words, he lives inside me and he lives inside you and he lives inside you, and he lives inside you in the back row, and he lives inside you in Lake County, and he lives inside those that are worshiping with us online right now. And God's Spirit combined in all of us when we come together creates a spiritual synergy, a mysterious power that you can sense and feel even though you can't always describe it. And now we know what it's like not to be able to gather, right? That's what we experienced most of last year. That's what we experienced again these last four weeks. If you ever wondered what would happen when we don't gather in worship, just think back on what you experienced. There's not a Sunday since we regularly started gathering, which was September of 2020. There's not a Sunday since then where we've been in the building, where someone has not come up to me and said something like this. This is my first time back in person. I've been online and I appreciated the online service, but it was not the same. Many of you told me that when we first came back into the building to worship together after all those weeks away, you started crying. Why? because you had missed it so much and you needed to see other people worshiping together with you. It's powerful. I know some young parents 
cried the first time they came back because they could put their kids in children's ministry and get a break for an hour. Amen. There's power in the presence of God's people. There's a couple of biblical analogies that help us understand this power. Number one, the body. The church is a body. Eleven times in the New Testament, the church is compared to a body. Here's just a couple of them from Paul. Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. The church is literally the physical representation of Christ's body on earth. Here's another one. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but with all its many parts, form one body, so it is with Christ. So here's a question. I want you to think about this. If the church is a body and you disconnect one of the parts from the body, is it still part of the body? I mean, if I chopped off my hand and left it at home, is it still part of my body? You wouldn't show someone a severed hand and say, look at my body. They would say, it's not a body, bro. That's an appendage. We know that any part of our body that's cut off and not quickly reattached, it dies. It literally gets drained of all life and vitality. The only way it can live and remain active and grow is to stay connected to the body. Now, I want to say the reason some of you feel drained and lifeless is because you've been disconnected for too long from the body of Christ. When I come to worship, my body is connected to the body of Christ. And when we worship together, it makes worship richer for everybody. Here's a second analogy. Church is a bride. Church is compared to a bride who has an intimate relationship with her bridegroom, Jesus. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul quotes the words of the original marriage ceremony, but then he adds an interesting twist at the end. Here's what he writes. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but here's what Paul says, look. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. I love that our services are streamed online. We would not have survived last year had it not been for our online ministry. People watch from all over the country and all over the world, just as they're doing right now. It's been a vital connection for all of us to stay connected to our church family. In fact, I want to encourage you right now, would you just give a clap of appreciation for our online team? Because those folks have done an amazing job. Would you just appreciate them? I mean, so many people. Thank you to our online team. I love our online ministry also because for increasing numbers of people, your first experience with Journey is online. You checked out a digital message online before ever stepping on one of our physical campuses. And in the same way people look at houses and cars online before purchasing, they also check out churches before attending. I think that is an awesome tool. But I got a question. If Christ in the church is like a marriage, here's a question. Could you have a marriage that exists 100% online? 
Technically, the answer is yes. It is possible to be married and never be in each other's physical presence. And I hope I'm not giving anybody any ideas, by the way. I suppose you could FaceTime each other whenever you wanted, and technically, you stay married. But here's the second question. Would it be a healthy marriage? Not by a long shot. In fact, eventually, the marriage would most likely fall apart. Why? Because as a married couple, you're designed by God to be physically present with each other. If you're new and you're checking things out online, I want to say this to you. Take as much time as you need. By the way, how do most people meet today and start a relationship? Online. They start hanging out online, getting to know each other. But at some point, they have to meet in person if the relationship is going to grow and develop. There's only so much you can know about someone in online dating. At some point, you got to get together. And wouldn't it be discouraging if you met someone you've been getting to know online, and when you finally meet up, you say, you know what, let's go back to meeting online. That'd sting a little bit, wouldn't it? If you're going to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you've got to move from online consumer to in-person community. Why? Because technology helps keep us informationally and even inspirationally connected, but it's not a substitute or replacement for incarnational connection. In July of 2016, a woman from Ontario, Canada, named Hannah Peterson, was in a very bad automobile accident. So bad that she broke her pelvis in three places. She punctured a kidney. She broke some ribs. She suffered a concussion and had partial hearing loss. That was bad enough in itself. But what's worse is that Hannah was supposed to be married five weeks after that accident. So when it came time to walk her down the aisle, take a look at this picture. That's Hannah's father. And Hannah, and he wheeled her part of the way. And then her fiance, Stuart, came to meet her and picked her up out of the wheelchair and tenderly carried her the rest of the way. Now, it was very important that Hannah, to Hannah, that she could stand for her vows, but she couldn't do it without Stuart's assistance. And so there's Stuart. He's lovingly, he's tenderly holding her up so they could repeat their vows to each other. And when the ceremony was over, Stuart carried his bride back down the aisle to start their new lives together. Isn't that a great story? Now, listen to me, friends. Yeah, give, give a hand for Stuart. Stuart's a good dude. I don't even, hey, Stuart, I don't know you, but you're a good dude. Way to go, man. Friends, we're the bride of Christ. You ever come to church one Sunday and you feel beat down? You just feel so deeply hurt and wounded by life. But in the experience of worship, you feel lifted. You feel like you're being carried Friends, that's not imaginary. That's not just in your head. That is really happening. The groom is coming to his hurting bride. You see, it's not just that Jesus is hurting for worship. No, it's Jesus loves to come to his hurting bride and carry her. And this helps followers of Jesus grow. One final thing. When we worship, we grow 
because it restores us. It restores us. Has anybody noticed that life is hard? Trying to be a light in a dark world is exhausting. We need to regularly get our spiritual batteries recharged. And so we see in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas get arrested for trying to bring the light of the gospel to the Roman city, Philippi. They get thrown into jail and they're beaten without a trial and their hands and feet are bound with a chain. What do they do? They sing songs of praise to God because worship does something for you when you're in a tough spot. Listen, trials are inevitable, but restoration is always possible because grace is always available when we're in the presence of God. One of the most misguided things I sometimes hear people say is this, well, it wouldn't do me any good to go to church today because I don't feel like it. Friend, that's exactly when you need to go the most. When we worship somehow, the struggles we have lose their power to discourage us. Did you know that's true even for Jesus? Right before the most horrific experience of his life, right before he walks into the garden and starts giving himself up to the worst that sin could do to him, here's the last thing that he did. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The very last thing Jesus wanted to do before beginning his suffering for our sin was to worship with some other people. We are restored when we worship because we're reminded of ultimate reality and here's how that happens. We grow because worship not only restores us, it restories us. Some of us are old enough to remember when Alex Haley's best-selling book, Roots, was turned into the most watched television miniseries of all time. I was 15 when Roots was originally broadcast in 1977. It's a story of Haley's family history that begins with his great-great-grandfather, a man named Kunta Kinte, who was abducted from his homeland in Africa loaded up on a slave ship like an animal along with hundreds of others of Africans, landed in Maryland, was sold to a plantation owner in Virginia, thus changing the narrative of his family forever. And there's a scene where Kuta Kinte is an older man and he drives his white master to a dance and he waits for him outside listening to the music of his master and his friends. But while he's waiting... He hears something else, something that compels him to get out of his buggy and leads him to a hut where another man from Africa is playing some music that Kunta Kinte recognizes. It was the music of his childhood in Africa. And the man and Kunta begin to speak in their native African language. And later that night, back in his hut, Kunta Kinte falls on the ground crying tears of sadness as he almost forgot where he came from, but also tears of joy because he remembered who he really was and what restored his identity were songs. As followers of Jesus, friends, we're surrounded by a lot of seductive narratives. Hollywood says we're entertainment consumers. Washington says we're political constituents. Wall Street says we're an economic commodity. Science says ultimately we're nothing more than a meaningless cosmic accident. All of us have to pick a story to live by. Discipleship is the conscious decision to live by the story where Jesus is in charge. 
Regular worship grows us because it reminds us who we are by retelling our story. We see this happening so clearly in the early church. I want to show you what I'm talking about, just a couple of passages really quickly. These are from Paul's letters. Almost every biblical scholar agrees that there are certain passages in our New Testament that were actually songs that the early church sang. In fact, in some of the English translations, they're almost written in your, in your text like a poem. Here's one from Philippians 2. Paul's telling the believers to have the same mindset as Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was a song. Here's another one found in 1 Timothy 3, 16. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, which preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Remember, a lot of the early Christians couldn't read. And the way they learned the gospel story was through music. And don't you love to sing songs that tell the story of Jesus Maybe an old school song like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Or maybe this timeless classic. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Or how about this great modern hymn? In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live, but it gets even better in this verse. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. What's happening when we sing songs like that? We're telling our story as Christ followers. And when the story is transmitted... Disciples are transformed. When we come together, we sing songs and we listen to words that tell us God's in control and He's with us. And we take bread and grape juice to remember that He's for us. And sometimes we watch people go under and come back up from the watery grave of baptism. And we hear good news and we are restoried. And that's why we're restored. Because we're reminded that our story has a glorious ending. Friend, why would any follower of Jesus not want to worship regularly? So I'm going to challenge you. Because with some, frankly, this used to be a bigger priority in your life than it's been lately. If you're going to follow Jesus, worship faithfully. Grow through regular worship so you can live a better story. So, Father, we, we thank you that we have 
the opportunity, the privilege, the wonder of gathering in your name. And we just say and declare, you're so worthy. Is it worth it? Father, help us to answer that question. Is he worthy? We believe you are. You will sustain and you will strengthen and you will give supply. So, Father, we, 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 we lift up. Worthy is the name of Jesus. And we all agreed and said. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.